Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. When you take part in DNA tests like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, you might find out some interesting tidbits about your background, nothing really consequential. But you might also find out some life-altering information, like your sibling is really your half-sibling. In my head, it was like, how do I define myself now? It's a can of worms that just keeps coming out. Or you might find out you have a life-altering medical condition. I mean, it really felt like being punched in the stomach or like having the rug pulled out from under you. Or you thought that you were half black, but the test says you're barely black at all. Oh, and by the way, you're not a single child anymore. Okay, uh, stop the world for a minute. I need to think, I just need to think. I'm Kion Wolf, here from people who've been stunned and spun around by the results of direct-to-consumer DNA tests. Don't spit in that tube till after you tune in to Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. You've seen the commercials. You always wonder, you know, who does make you who you are? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it... There's a whole world of genes just waiting to meet you in over 90 genetic reports at 23andMe.com. Ancestry.com searches the world's largest online family history resource so you can discover who you came from. Imagine what's possible when we connect it all together. Sounds innocuous. I've done it. I've spit in a tube till I couldn't spit anymore, sent it off in a prepaid envelope, waited a few weeks, and then poof. Like magic, I find out that I am pretty much what I've always been told I am. 30% European Jewish, 26% Irish, 20% Eastern European, and 14% Scottish. Cool. Nothing revelatory. But what if you spit in that tube, waited those weeks, and then you got news that completely destabilized your life? Today, stories of when DNA test kits become a Pandora's box of turmoil, excitement, fear, and confusion. You'll hear one woman's story about what it felt like to find out she has a genetic mutation that makes her more likely to have breast and ovarian cancer. And you'll meet a woman whose DNA test told her that she wasn't even close to being half black, as she thought. But first, if you have a sibling, you probably take note of what you have in common. Maybe that same smile when you cheese just right, or look at that jawline. That is a family jawline. But what if you found out, after taking one of those DNA tests that you send in the mail, that that isn't your full sibling? It's your half-sibling. And the dad that you thought was your dad isn't anyone's biological dad. Back in March of 2018, Randy K. of Trumbull, Connecticut, and Rick K. of Wilton, Connecticut, had just that experience. They found out that their mother is the same woman, but they had different fathers. And the parents who raised them aren't alive anymore to explain themselves or fill in any blanks at all. Along with Rick's wife, Annette, they started doing their research, trying to find out what happened and why. 
I wanted to know, beyond their understandable feelings of shock, were there any, and I mean any, parts of them that felt like, ah, this explains some things? Yes. In stages, I'd say, right? I mean, at first, we have different recollections, but I remember you going, I knew it. I always knew I was different. But you recall that differently, right? I don't recall it differently. I don't recall saying it, but I believe that I said it because I was in total shock. I mean, there was no brain, there was no blood in my head above the neck after, when that happened. It all drained out. What were the kind of things that you, that suddenly seemed to make sense? The most obvious one is the fact that I am blonde and blue and the rest of my family is, is brown and brown or black and brown. I mean, dark, much, much darker than I am. I just don't look like any of them. And it was a running gag between Randy and I that when we would be introduced as brother and sisters, we'd put our arms over each other and tilt our heads together and say, don't we look alike? You know, and it was a big joke. Well, it's not such a big joke anymore. And so with that, I thought, oh, well, Rick's got a different dad. It never occurred to me that I might have a different dad, although the ethnicity was in question. And we knew this much. Our parents are gone at least two decades. So there was no one to ask. All our aunts and uncles have passed away. And we joked about the milkman and all those silly, you know, you, you come up with humor just to cover the shock. And we knew we had to go home and kind of think this through. But my first thought was, how are we going to find out what the truth was? Now, did mom have an affair? Did she go behind dad's back and get, you know, we just didn't know. And because I look so much like my mother and I thought so much like my father, the natural thing was, well, Rick's got a different dad. Maybe we knew they had had trouble conceiving. We knew it took them four years. This is back in the 50s. So we thought maybe they just needed a little kickstart for the first pregnancy. And then the next two just came along. So I then started the detective work. And the first thing was to ask people we know. None of our cousins knew anything on the case side. Kay, obviously, our social dad's name. And nobody knew anything about it. Finally called a friend who was like a cousin to us because her mom had almost married my dad twice, back when they were teenagers and after our mom died. So she's kind of like a cousin. And I called her and I said, Sarah, Rick and I have a question for you. Kind of weird. We had our DNA tested. And that's as far as I got. She said, oh, I know what this is about. I'm like, he said, well, I've been waiting 50 years to tell you this because my mother swore me to secrecy, but Rick is a sperm donor baby. And by the way, you are too. And the reason I know this is I was very jealous of you in high school because I wasn't doing as well as you guys were with grades. And my mother said to me, well, their fathers are doctors. That's why. And that is the secret. And obviously our social dad is not who she was talking about. So only because of Sarah, we learned that our bio dads were doctors or medical students, because that's kind of how it was done at the time. So that was a double shock, because suddenly you asked about thoughts. In my head, it was like, how do I define myself now? You know, in our family, it was like, you're either a K or you're not a K. And it was sort of this compliment and being a K meant all kinds of things that weren't always pretty. Right, Rick? 
(laughs) (laughs) It meant you could take a joke, you could tease somebody and they would tease you back. And you had this particular sense of humor. And like any kid, you try to please your parents and be a K. And I always thought I had my dad's stubbornness and his jaw. I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm the only one in my family that sings and is interested in the arts. And so I felt like a black sheep and Rick felt like a black sheep and, or whatever color. And it's just, <laughs> you know, I don't, it's a, that's a terrible term now that you think about it. But anyway, <laughs> you think about it, yeah. um, we just each felt in our own way, like outcasts in our family. There's a, that's it, the main thought is who am I and who is Rick to me? Obviously my brother, but it put a lot of things in perspective. In the couple years since this began, how have how has this changed how you relate to one another? I think we're closer. In addition to growing up as brother and sister, nothing's going to change that. We have this shared trauma. It's like my wife, Annette, and Randy and I are all in this three-person support group, if you will. <laughs> if someone asks me how I feel about this situation, on any given day, I can have a different answer and be honest on that given day. One day I'm mad at my parents for lying to me. The next day I'm grateful for them for how they swallowed their pride to do what they had to do to have a family. It's just all over the place. And uh, Randy. Yeah. Yeah. We've also had different post experiences with finding blood relatives, which brings up a whole bunch of other things as well. I have found one half sister with whom I am developing a friendship who is three months older than I am. It's kind of like when you have a bio dad, that's a sperm donor, they could have like a harem. Like you, you know, you don't know we're three. I have a sister three months apart and we have met in person and she is a doctor and we are starting a friendship and we're both pretty clear that this is new and we're interested, but there are two half sisters that I know about only through my bio dad's obituary that have not responded to any correspondence. And since I saw you last, Rick, I have tried to get in touch with the other one. And the bio dad never responded to anything I sent out. I do know that he lived into his 90s and practiced medicine until he was 90s. So that, you know, that's good. I don't feel as rejected as I thought I would. I kind of live in empathy. I try to to live in empathy. And I was a little hurt. And, but then I was like, you know, this is a medical student who needed money and was told it would never be any consequences. So it is what it is, but I've kind of settled back into family is what you embrace. Family is shared experience. And if you don't get along with some family members, family is sometimes choosing which parts of someone to embrace. And it's the great teacher of life. Like, hey, maybe you wouldn't like this person if you worked with them, but you know, you get along. But yeah, Rick and I have been through this shared shock and trauma together. And we so respect the way each of us has handled it. And we understand it. So I agree, Rick, it has definitely brought us closer. Part of me, and some days I'm like, this doesn't even matter. My dad's my dad. But I I wish they had told us. I wish they were here. I wish I could ask them, how hard was it to be infertile? How much did it cost you to go to Manhattan in 1952 and, you know, get counseling and get, I, I there's so many questions. And then sometimes I'm like, none of it really matters. And then some days it's like, it really does matter. So it's weird. Identity is weird. 
I, through a very arduous process with Annette's help and with that first clue from Sarah that, that you got from me, was able over a period of probably a year of research to find uh, the biological family. My biological father has long since passed, but I found his five children and I reached out to them. And over the course of uh, submitting my DNA to every, every place that would have it, uh, was able to find five other siblings. So I now have 12 half siblings, almost all of whom we are in contact with on a regular basis. A matter of fact, tonight we have a Zoom meeting where the last uh, inductee is going to be, <laughs> be joining us. Are there any like rituals or prayers, seances? No, no, you know? no, no. It's just, uh, you know, the first one we had was at the beginning of COVID quarantine and, and everybody was holding up their glasses and saying, oh, you've got a quarantini. And, you know, it was all friendship stuff more than family stuff. But in the beginning, it was telling them telling me stories about their family life and what, what my biological father was like. And it was really touching how they tried to, for lack of a better word, they retroactively implant memories into my head. And um, they're never going to be family like Randy is, but we, we share a biological bond. And I've got, like I said, you know, besides the two I grew up with and the, and the five in the family, there's five other donor sibs that I, I am in contact with. And I reached out to each one of them one by one, delicately asking the question, I see we're related. Do you have any idea how we're related? And if not, do you want to know? Mm. You know, something just occurred to me in that I haven't, and you don't know this, but you're going to know this now. There's an element of jealousy in me. I'm your only sister. And when you have sisters that I see on your Zoom calls that look way more like you than I do, the child in me is like, her more than me. You know, I mean, it's just like it pops up. I mean, it's just, of course, the adult in me is like, of course not. He's your brother. He loves you. You know, like you and I grew up in the same family. Nothing can replace that. But there is a weird thing when I see all these sisters and the brothers that look so much more like you that it just brings up this sort of childish jealousy in me. And I, you know, I see that, oh, he really belongs with them kind of, you know, kind of mentality. And, you know, we each have kids, too, who were shocked by this. This isn't just two people finding out you know, my kids, no, well, my kid's birth father was adopted and my daughter just found an uncle. Like it's this whole thing is in England and thank gosh, thank God for Zoom. It, it helps, but it helps you find out who you are to an extent and then also to reinforce that who you are isn't just your genetics, but it does matter. Maybe it shouldn't matter, but it does matter. And maybe I have more brothers and sisters out there who just haven't had a DNA test. So it's a can of worms that just keeps coming out. Rick, I see you shaking your head, but you also understand. I mean, that is, Randy, you bringing up jealousy was one of the things I wanted to talk about because when I think about, for example, having kids, when people choose to have children or have children, uh, there's an excitement about like, will they have my jawline? Will they have my eyes? And there's this, sometimes that's the only reason or a big reason people have children. And there's a lot of meaning in that. 
And there's a lot of good reasons why there's meaning in that. A lot of old reasons why we look for the familiar when we know that's our DNA. Like, wow. And I'm, I wonder when you meet these new family members and you see, and you too, Randy, you see, oh, wow, we definitely look like I see myself in you. First of all, how wild is that? And second of all, Rick, do you get that feeling of jealousy and, and, and do you experience it yourself at all? Nothing's going to change my relationship with my sister for the worse. I mean, uh, we spent our whole lives together. Even even as adults, we've, we've always been geographically close. But it is kind of weird to see a little girl in Colorado, a picture of a little girl who, who is now living in Colorado with my face and bangs. You know, Oof. I mean, it's just bizarre. And uh, my biological father and one of my half siblings practically share the same face. It is scary how close, how much they look like each other. So this nature nurture thing is constantly rolling around in my head. You know, why was I good at this particular sport? And, you know, why do I have certain likes and dislikes and, and, and shortcomings? You know, there were some shortcomings I inherited from my father, I'm sure, you know, that I didn't learn it at home. (laughs) It's clear that a recurring theme is this sudden chaos and uncertainty and questioning, who am I and who are you to me? And trying to redefine these relationships and while redefining yourself. And are you glad you took this test? Um, yes. I think it's a truth we needed to know. That's all I'm going to say. I'm glad I found out because it explains, first of all, a little bit more about how I look the way I look. There's a, there's a psychological term called the unthought known. It's something that you know at a subconscious level, but you don't, but you're not consciously aware of. I've always felt a bit apart. Uh, it, it was an important breakthrough, maybe too strong a word, but it was, it, was, it was an important fact to know to help explain who I am and um, where I came from. Now, I've asked this question of all the other donor sibs that are my half siblings, and every single one of them has said, yes, I'm glad I know. It was a shock at first, but now I'm glad that I know because it explains things. And uh, this, the family of my donor, were they're all very happy. Almost all of them are extremely happy that they had a chance to know this fact and to, to meet us. It's hard for me to, it was a different time. And we have seen through our research a possible contract that our parents might have signed in that time. We think we know which clinic they went to. We're not sure. They didn't keep- it's confirmed. It is. Okay. Recent research confirmed it. Thank you. Thank you, Rick and Annette. Um, So in that contract, they were sworn to secrecy. And I believe, because I'm the eternal optimist, I'm a realistic optimist. All right. So I believe they, our parents honestly thought it was in our best interest that they not tell us, that they bought it hook, line, and sinker, that there should never be a doubt that they were our parents. And like anything you're told that you want to believe, the more you tell it to yourself, the more you believe it. It becomes deeply ingrained, which is 
why politically so many people won't get out of their corners, but that's another, another topic. So, another episode. you know, but it's, it's a confirmation bias. So they might've been tempted to tell us, but just thought it was in our best interest and maybe in their best interest. The longer you keep the secret, the harder it is to tell it. But I look back at that era late 40s, early 50s, but I wonder what the thinking was back then to not tell the children the truth. I just, it's, it's, it is what it is. They thought what they thought, but I'm glad it's not that way anymore because I think keeping the secret and not celebrating the truth of how you came into this world is a big mistake. I wish we'd known earlier. And we could have dealt with that. I wish we could. Mom and dad were still alive and we could just ask them and hear them say, oh, thank God the secret's out. Let me tell you what we went through. Like, that's my one regret that I wish we could ask them about it. You've got a lot of really great, important questions that you would ask your parents. But what would you say to them if you could? It would be a combined thank you. And I forgive you. I agree. And I think before I got there, I would ask questions. I would want to understand. Look, we all forget to ask our parents questions about what kind of people they are before we came around. It's just life. I would like to ask them what it was like. How hard was this decision? How hard was it to be four years not conceiving when everyone else around you, every, you know, the, both the youngest in their families, surrounded by nieces and nephews, and it must have felt like failure? How tempted were you in our whole lives to tell us the truth, especially when Rick or I would have questions about how much we were loved or why are we different? Or I would want to know if they had been tempted to tell us and why they didn't. But it would also be, thank you. I have a I have a stepson in England whose dad is the same as my my first husband. And when I told him, he said, Hey, at least you know you were wanted by both your parents. Mm. And that has comforted me. I said, you know, they both wanted us desperately. They definitely they worked really hard to get us. And we were not accidents by any shape or form. So I would say thank you for that, for wanting us so much, for working so hard to get us here. And I forgive you for not telling me, although I wish you had. And I know you did your best, like we all do. Randy and Rick Kay, thank you so much for telling me your story. Pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. When we get back. I seriously shut down. It was just too much. What it's like when you know the DNA test must be wrong. Plus, why finding out that you have a possibly life-threatening genetic mutation via zeros and ones may not be the best way to get that news. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. 
Today, we're hearing stories about when direct-to-consumer DNA tests like Ancestry.com and 23andMe reveal far more than some folks bargained for. This next one is about what happens when it's not the origin story that's wrong. It's when the DNA test itself is wrong. Sigrid Johnson was raised by two black parents in Philadelphia, and when she found out at 16 years old that she was adopted, it was a shock. What was even more shocking was that she found out her biological mother was a white Italian woman, and her biological father was a black man with African roots. Her response was to immerse herself even more in black history and culture. She went on to graduate from an historically black college. But when Sigrid was 62 years old, she took a DNA test that came back with a surprise. The test came about when her lifelong friend and genetic researcher, Anita Foman, was doing a research study on ethnicity, racial identity, and DNA. Sigrid thought she'd be finding out more information about her African and Italian background, but when the lab came back with the result that she was only 2.978% African... I knew then and there that it was incorrect. It showed I was Afghanistan, Pakistanian, and Spanish. That was the majority of it was Spanish and Pakistan and Afghanistan. So my son, he's like, Mom, who in 1953, what, what Pakistan and Spanish person got together in 1953? Seriously. <laughs> so between that and thinking, you know, what, that, you know, you got to think back. Yeah, duh. That doesn't sound right. And plus, I had my original birth certificate. So I knew something was amiss. And my son, when he saw it, we both laughed. We just kind of laughed it off. And I didn't think twice about it. I never really let that uh, bother me because I knew better. So then Ruth Padawar from the New York Times gets in touch via your friend Anita. And, and ultimately, you agree to get tested by 23andMe and Ancestry. As the results are getting processed, what were you feeling? What were you hoping for? I was excited to see what would come out of this. I really thought that maybe I might find in my you know deepest my, uh, you know, in my inner mind thinking that you can, I may find out something about my medical history through my family. I might find a family member. I already knew that at the age that my mother's, my original birth certificate stated her age. I, I assumed that she had already passed away anyway. But Ruth explained to me that it was basically to get in touch. I have to, I had to sign a um, waiver stating that I could share my DNA so I thought, okay, so if somebody answers, that's one thing, but I doubt it. I really didn't think that anybody would because I didn't think anyone knew that I would even existed. So when the results start coming in, they say you are what? Italian, African-American. Um, eventually when it all came in, that's when I kind of had a sigh of relief. I knew that I had at least, you know, I knew it was, it was just confirmation. Let's put it that way. It was more confirmation stating that I was opposed to what I had received before. And up until that point, I understand that a lot of the confusion and frustration was that some of the DNA tests were coming back with varying levels of confidence because they only have so many data sets and they can't be totally sure that this result is truly this result, which made it so things weren't, forgive me, as black and white as you'd want out of a DNA test. Like you don't take a DNA test to not be totally sure about something, you know? 
And actually, Ruth and I got on the phone and spoke to someone at both places, Ancestry and 23andMe. And we found at that point that they were trying to tell us at first it was 80% competency. And then they finally got, she asked for a supervisor over one supervisor over another. She was serious. She was getting involved. You know, New York Times Magazine's not messing around. No, they weren't. And um, they finally came back and said it was 99% competency. The thing about your story that really like got my heart racing was you were told you were half black. And there was this first DNA result that came back that was saying you were not really black at all. And then there are these other tests that come back afterwards that say, uh, no, you were right. You were right. What you were told was right. But then like some sort of whiplash of, well, there's this much confidence and that much confidence. So it was like you going from being sure of one thing to questioning it like even just a little bit because now you're up against science because of all this information that's come in, confirming what you believe and also challenging what you believe. Did all this make you lose trust in science in these processes or, or what? Honestly, it did not. It did not because I knew that the truth was going to come out completely. I, you know, I, I already knew in my heart and mind that this was not, you know, it's going to come out. It's going to come out. What I was told was right. And I, you know, just had confidence in it. I honestly did. I didn't feel like it was going to come back, you know, stating that there was, there wasn't any black in me or whatever. I I just knew that it would. I, I just had no, no doubt in it at all. As if this wasn't enough, another identity change that you had to go through, you know, back when you were a teenager, realizing that your parents are your parents, but they're not your biological parents. And then later in life, realizing that, oh, you are not technically an only child in the DNA sense. You have how many siblings now? I couldn't believe it. 20 from a single child living on Lincoln Drive with a seven-bedroom home and five ba- bathrooms my parents had. And don't, people used, used to laugh, what, what, with one child, why? Well, you know what? With all those kids, we could have put them all in there. <laughs> yeah, I think you got to gotten some bunk beds and taken care of it. <laughs> so you've met all these half-siblings. You're, you're becoming closer with your half-sister, June. There's a lot of good stuff that's come out of this, but there's also been so much (laughs) turmoil and waiting and trying to wrap your head around who you are, what your background is. So knowing all you've been through, would you, if you could go back in time, do it again? I have to tell you something. If you asked me this a year ago or maybe longer before the pandemic, okay, two years ago when all this started, I'd say. I would have said no, but now I would say uh, it's a ride. It's a joyful ride because it's just amazing how much love I'm getting, you know, from family members and, and, and then my own family that are my family that I always say, because I had a wonderful childhood. I have a wonderful family and I love them. What advice would you have for people who are listening to this show and considering doing a DNA test. 
make sure that you're ready for whatever may come because you will be on a whirlwind ride or you may not find a thing or you may find things that you did not realize you wanted to know because it will show it all. And I would say, be prepared, just be prepared because I, when I first found out, I shut myself down for three days and couldn't even speak to my friends. That's how, that's why I said two and a half years ago, if you had asked me this, I'd say, I would say no. I seriously shut down. It was just too much. She had me talking to all the different sisters and brothers on my mother's side. And it was like, welcome me. Oh God, we've been looking for you. This and that. I mean, it was like, you know, all this, these people I don't know. And, you know, and then I finally, even my sister said, oh my God, did I do something wrong? And I had to explain to her, I'm sorry, because she didn't know me that well then, but I had to sit and just meditate and think for a minute. I needed time to myself because I did not know I was going to open all that that quickly. I, I didn't expect it that quickly. That's all. That was just too much at one time for me. It was all in two days. People calling me constantly, all different family members. My God, nieces, nephews, cousins. I'm, I'm like, whoa. Okay. Uh, stop the world for a minute. I need to think. I just need to think. But now after all that you've been through, what would you tell people who are interested in doing a DNA test? Well, I'd say go for it. Just go for it. It's in your heart. Whatever is in your heart. If you want to do this, just remember there will be surprises and, and, and just open your heart to it because listen, it is your life, you know, and they do have uh, options on there that actually give you, you know, health problems that if, if you have, they, they can tell you through DNA, what you may have an underlying condition to have be preceded before you be, you'll be able to take care of it. But other than that, just be prepared. I was kind of like, just, oh, we're going to do this now. And then I was, it, it was done. And here I am <laughs> like, okay, still in shock. <laughs> well, Sigrid Johnson, thank you so much for telling me your story. Thank you for having me tell the story. I appreciate it. I hope I help someone with this. I want to say thanks to Ruth Padawar. She's the contributor to the New York Times Magazine, whose story about Sigrid made us want to feature her on Audacious. Not only did she connect us with Sigrid, but her comprehensive, exhaustive research into the subject gave us a wonderful introduction to Sigrid's story. We'll have a link to her New York Times Magazine article on our webpage, ctpublic.org audacious. After the break. Too often, we're so in awe of the technology that these companies are creating, and, you know, sometimes rightly so, we give them a break on how it affects us humans. The psychological and emotional consequences of finding out you've got a life-threatening genetic mutation via zeros and ones on a screen. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, a few cautionary tales of what you may be getting yourself into when you spit in a tube and contribute your genetic and health markers to DNA tests like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Knowing more about your medical risks is overall a wonderful, powerful thing. I mean, 
you have every right to not seek out that information and live without knowing if and until some symptoms come up. But if you want to know and you find out, that's the stuff of dreams, medically speaking. But those dreams sometimes have the genetic makeup of nightmares. Even though Dorothy Pomerantz's aunt had died of breast cancer, it always seemed like an anomaly to her. The rest of the women in her family lived long, healthy lives. So when she signed up for 23andMe's ancestry and health panels, it wasn't not in her mind that something might come up. But it's one thing to imagine what it's like to get hard news, and another thing entirely when the news is confirmed, not by a human being with a heartbeat and compassion and resources and a medical degree, but alone, in a room, after a few clicks on a webpage. I asked Dorothy to tell me about what that moment was like. When you get results from 23andMe, you get your ancestry results pretty easily. But the health stuff, they make you go through a lot of um, pages of, I don't know, disclaimers, information before you see your results. So I was going, you know, I, I looked at those pages and I was just sort of like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I got to the results and I was just like, what? I mean, it really felt like being punched in the stomach or like having the rug pulled out from under you. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever sort of dealt with a diagnosis or anything, but um, it's horrifying because one minute your life is one way. And then literally the next second, your life is another way. I mean, you know, as a woman, I worried about breast cancer, but I didn't worry about it more than the average sort of mild hypochondriac. Right, I know. <laughs> you know, like that was just my personality. But a little bit of that is good because it keeps you aware. It keeps you doing self-breast checks. Like, yeah, for sure. And, you know, getting mammograms is always, you have that moment after your mammogram or those couple of days where you're like, mm, like uh, they're going to find something. But then it's all, you know, for the vast majority of people, it's usually fine. But then sometimes it's not. And, you know, there's just that moment where you realize, like, your life has completely changed and it's never going to be the same. And you're sitting in front of a computer screen. Yeah. And getting this information from a bunch of zeros and ones. And you got some more tabs open from your previous life before you got this news. And all of a sudden, the world is different and scarier. And it's just you over there. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, you know, if you've ever um, gone on 23andMe, their branding is pretty like colorful and they have these little cartoons of people and stuff. And it just, it just felt like this isn't real. My husband came in and I showed him and I was just kind of in shock, really. I immediately called my uh, gynecologist and I told her, and her reaction was, this is great. You know, and I was like, this is literally the worst thing that's ever happened to me up to this point. <laughs> she was like, "This is no, this is great. She was like, knowing this is great. And at the time, I really could not understand what she meant. But, but now I certainly do. You know, in her life, she sees women who have cancer and go through cancer treatment and die or have long-term complications and it's horrible, like it's horrible. And here I had this opportunity to say, I know that this is very likely gonna happen to me and I can stop it before it happens. You know, for a doctor, that's a miracle. 
um, for a patient, it's terrifying. Both are true at once. Yeah. So I, I was very lucky. You know, I have really, really great doctors. I live in Los Angeles. I have access to wonderful health care. She got me in to see a, a breast doctor at Cedar sinai the next week. I went to see, I can't remember who I saw first, but when I went to see um, the breast doctor, she said, we're not going to do anything until we do another test. She said, we can talk about what this means, but we are not making any decisions until you get a better test. You know, 23andMe is a retail test. It is a slimmed down version of a test that doctors do that is much more involved. And that's a really, really, really important fact that nobody tells you when you do this DNA test. And I don't think people realize it. You know, for example, I was actually really lucky that it found my BRCA mutation because there's tons of BRCA mutations that it does not test for. So it leans towards a mutation that is prevalent in Ashkenazi Jews who are at a higher risk of getting BRCA, but there are variations that show up in black women, in Latinx women, in white women that may not be caught. And so when people are drawn to something like 23andMe's, especially their, their genetic testing for, for health issues, they may think they're in the clear and they're not, and that's a dangerous game. Which is much more dangerous. If I had gotten a clean bill of health from that test, I would have thought, I'm done. You know, I'm clear. This didn't show a BRCA mutation. I don't have a BRCA mutation. But this is sort of hindsight. Uh, so when I was with my doctor, they had a genetic counselor who happened to be in their office that day. She came in. She gave me another test, like a, a hospital-approved test. And she said, we're going to talk about all of this. We're going to talk about your options. We're going to talk about what this means. Your feelings? Yeah. And, you know, she was so uh, comforting. And she was like, I'm going to talk to you for as long as you want to talk. And she also said, I'm not going to email you the results of this test. And um, I had this trip to Italy plan that I planned for such a long time with my family. And uh, I said, if I'm in Italy, when these results come back, I can't not find out what they are. And she said, okay, I'll talk to you on the phone. So when I was in Italy, she emailed me and I called her and she said, you know, the test was correct. You do have this mutation. How did that feel to hear? I, I'd sort of come to the conclusion that this was real. And, uh, you know, this was sort of my last hope that something was going to make it not real. But I had already discuss this with my husband, not anybody else in my family, but I felt very, very set on the fact that I was going to have surgery as soon as possible. The alternative was to monitor it, which would have meant getting an MRI every year. You know, my gynecologist was like, you don't monitor the ovary situation. She was just like, you're done having children it's very, very, very hard to detect ovarian cancer. She's like, you have to, you have to have your ovaries removed. But with the breasts, they were like, you can make a choice. And I said, 
my choice is to have surgery. Like that's, I'm, I was very, very, very set on that fact. There was no debate in my mind. So, you know, when I heard the news in Italy, it was upsetting, but confirming. Uh, so it wasn't like a new, new bad news. <laughs> so, um, you know, when I got back, I figured out how I wanted to schedule my surgeries. Um, I talked to my work and uh, I started seeing a therapist. <laughs> and I had my ovaries out and I had a double mastectomy. And then I had implant replacement surgery. And then a few months ago, I had to have a second surgery because they had messed something up in, in the first surgery. So, you know, I've had four surgeries it's a lot. And I, t- I take hormones every day to make up for not having ovaries, but I am alive. <laughs> yeah, you get to live to tell the tale. I was 47, I think when this happened. So, you know, the fact that I had made it this long without getting cancer was actually, I felt really, really lucky. You know, part of me also felt like, well, maybe it's because I have another gene that's actually protecting me and maybe they'll find that out down the road. And then I said, I don't really care. Like, I can keep myself safe now. I can do everything I can to be there for my children and to be there for my family. And of course, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Now, some may be listening to this story and, you know, the roller coaster that you went on and the understandable angst that anyone getting this news in any context would go through in their own way. But I can imagine some thinking like, lady, you got your results. What's the problem? So what would you change? I mean, the main thing I would change would be the way that I got the results. You know, yes, after writing about this, a ton of people have sort of said to me, you are being really whiny and spoiled. Like technology gave you this amazing thing. How dare you question how they deliver it to you? And I think it's fair to question it. And I have spoken to people at, at, at 23andMe about it. I mean, I think that what 23andMe is doing is amazing. I think the fact that we talk about our DNA and we understand our DNA and we understand the ramifications of it so much more than we would have even five years ago is a miracle. Like the fact that you can talk to almost any person and, about DNA testing and they know what you mean is amazing. And a lot of that is because of these Silicon Valley companies, but they're giving information to human beings. And I was so lucky in that I was able to get my doctor on the phone right away. And I am the kind of person who was like, right, we're taking action. Okay. We're doing things. And I was lucky that I, that they knew that they had my mutation in their books, if you see what I mean. To deal with all of this, the the way they market 23andMe, the way that they brand it, it's a game. And for people who are getting health diagnoses, it's not a game, it's their life. And I'm not the CEO of a company. I don't know how you meld those two things, but I think it's worth talking about. And I think it's worth pushing these companies to really take these things into consideration. Maybe you need to have somebody on, on the phone standing by to talk to people who get this diagnosis. Um, maybe there are people who don't know what to do next. Maybe there are people who don't have health insurance who get this news. And to treat it all the same 
like finding out that all of my ancestors came from the same town in Russia, just one little red dot, you know, that was it. (laughs) You don't need a counselor for that. Right. To equate that with finding out that I have a mutation that gives me like an 80% chance of getting cancer, you know, that, that is been in my family and that can pass down to my family is a big deal. (laughs) Like it's a really big deal. I don't think that there's anything wrong with pointing out that gap. I think it's important because as these companies go forward, I do feel they have to do better and they have to take these things into consideration. And I think that too often we're so in awe of the technology that these companies are creating. And, you know, sometimes rightly so we give them a break on how it affects us humans. And I want people to take that into consideration, which is a big part of the reason why I'm so open to telling my story and to help other people who are in this situation. I, I wished I had had someone who I was able to call in that moment who had been through that. If you were able to go back to yourself that difficult day in front of your screen before your husband came in and you get the results and your heart is racing and everything looks different now, what would you have said to yourself? Um, I guess the main thing I would have said is that it's going to be okay, that you're stronger than you think and you can get through this. I think we're all stronger than we think and we can get through things. And you don't know that until you're faced with something hard. Well, Dorothy Pomerantz, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. I'm glad to help. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows featuring things like A Year in the Life of Two Women Who Made Very Different Post-Mastectomy Decisions to Reconstruct or Not, The Awesomeness and Agony of Not Being Able to Feel Any Physical Pain, Profiles of People Who Have an Ultra-Rare Condition Where They're Able to Remember Almost Every Day of Their Lives As If It Were Yesterday, From Hospice to the Funeral Home to the Church, A Look at the Life of My Stepfather's Death, And what a 911 operator who hears from people on the worst days of their lives feels when she talks with God. Visit ctpublic.org slash audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening.